Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Laura, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, hello, Sam. Nice to be here. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you made your way into machine learning research? Um, yes, so I studied actually um, not at all machine learning or, or computer vision. So I studied telecommunications engineering back in Barcelona. And then uh, I went to do my master thesis at Northeastern University in Boston. And that's the first time that I, I took a course in computer vision. And so that's where, let's say, my passion for, for this field started. And then I decided to pursue a PhD. So I went back to, to northern Germany to do a PhD in Hanover. And uh, during the course of my PhD, um, machine learning and especially deep learning started to become really, really popular within the field of computer vision. And towards the end of my PhD is when I started to um, to focus a little bit more or try to get into, into machine learning and understanding how could this be useful for the tasks that I was dealing with during my PhD. And uh, after that, I went to uh, ETH in Zurich for a couple of years for a postdoc. Um, and uh, after that, I moved to, to Munich also for another postdoc until until well until recently where i was given the wonderful chance of uh, becoming a tenure track professor also here in munich great what was the focus of your phd research so i was working on uh, multiple object tracking i started with uh, with a project where we had to track algaes um, and this was for um, to study essentially how algaes get um, stuck or get attached into the surfaces of ships. And so basically they, they ruin the surfaces. And so the, the whole idea, this was together with the uh, Department of, uh, of Chemistry and, and Physics. So they were really studying the possible materials uh, that could repel these algaes. And within this project, uh, my goal was essentially to analyze the way these algaes moved and of course, they had tons and tons of video data, and they could not just manually follow each of the um, of these algaes manually. So they wanted to have an automatic tool for uh, for analyzing these large amounts of data. And so this is how I started uh, with the with the topic of multiple object tracking. And then I moved a bit more towards um, people tracking because the the motion uh, of of people were more interesting. There was the whole um, goal of, of analyzing the, the pedestrian motion for, for example, for autonomous driving applications. And so this is uh, where basically I shifted more towards um, crowded scenes, analyzing uh, people interaction and using these interactions for better prediction of people motion. And more recently, you've been working on visual localization. Can you tell us about that problem and uh, your approach to it? Um, yes. So um, visual localization is, is an entirely different problem. So here, uh, what we're interested in is um, estimating the, the position of a camera in 3D within a given scene. Uh, and you can imagine that this given scene can be either a building for indoor localization or uh, an entire city for outdoor localization. 
And this, um, this scene, this model is essentially reconstructed from images using standard computer vision techniques, such as structure from motion. And from this, you can just um, crawl a bunch of images from Flickr and reconstruct, for example, entire cities in 3D. And so now the idea is that you're walking around that city and you take a picture of some building and you want to know exactly where your camera was located when you took that picture. And this has applications in, for example, augmented reality or, or robotic navigation, where you really need a very precise localization of your camera. And so this, this is not a new field at all. So it has been uh, tackled in computer vision for a really long time. Uh, but recently, people started tackling this problem, of course, with deep learning. And, and so we were looking into, into this with, uh, with a master's thesis here at TUM. And we actually realized that people were kind of uh, forgetting all the classic research in these fields. So they were just blindly taking neural networks and applying it to this problem, where the input was an image and the output was directly the camera pose. Um, so what we're, um, what we're working on now is to kind of fusing the classic knowledge of, of geometry, multiple view geometry, feature extraction, and all the, the knowledge that was gathered in something like 10 plus years of research in visual localization and trying to fuse this with, with the data-driven or deep learning methods. And uh, within this, um, this project in particular, what we're doing is not actually um, trying to extract an absolute pose of the camera, which is what methods like PoseNet are doing, um, but actually estimating a relative pose between a camera that you know where it is located because you used it to create your model and this new image that you're, um, that you're capturing. And so this method is actually much more flexible because um, you can go anywhere, take a picture, and as long as you have some other pictures around you that you know were used um, to create your model, you can actually localize yourself, which is not true for PoseNet, where you actually need to retrain a different neural network for every specific scene where you want to localize yourself. And so we have, we have been working towards this goal of, of relative pose estimation with neural networks and including some geometry, multiple view geometry information. And this was, um, this is the, the work of one of my PhD students who also she recently started. And it's also uh, together in collaboration with, uh, with Thorsten Sadler from ETH Zurich. And the, the ultimate goal is, of course, to handle more and more complex scenes that could not be handled before with, with classic methods. And by more complex scenes, what I mean is, for example, dynamic scenes. And this is where my expertise in, in multiple object tracking comes in. So if you are actually observing um, a city, um, it's very easy to localize your camera if your city is empty. And so you only have the buildings and the static parts in there. But as soon as you have crowds of people and all these dynamic objects, they just, um, they are not good for your localization. So they're basically noise for your localization. So we want eventually to build a pipeline that is robust enough to handle these dynamic scenes. One of the things that you mentioned is a, a bit of a recurring theme here on the podcast, and that is this idea of fusing deep learning based methods, um, CNNs, I imagine in this case, and more traditional uh, methods to kind of inform those CNNs. And there's 
there seems to be a tension in the in the research about whether an end-to-end deep learning approach is, you know, better given sufficient data and and sufficient compute or whether we should try to incorporate the you know, the various things we've learned about these various problems we're trying to solve or the physics of given situations. Maybe talk a little bit about the model that you're building to fuse those two types of uh, approaches and, and how you've uh, gone after that specific part of it. Um, yes, yeah, so that's actually a, a very a very good question because it's really a central point that is that is coming up more and more in discussions within the community. So I think there was a, a really big shift from these model-based methods to um, data-driven methods, fully data-driven. And in theory, if one has enough computational resources, enough data, this is the perfect setup because you have a universal approximator that can just express any function uh, that you want to find. So this, in theory, is perfect. The problem is that data is very costly to obtain. And so now people are talking about constraining your deep architecture with some previous knowledge, as you said, like like physics or, in our case, multiple view geometry. Now, the interesting question is, where do you put this information? So do you put it in the loss function? Do you constrain your uh, activation maps to have certain shapes? Or um, you can also, for example, actually make your architecture more modular so that each of the different uh, parts is interpretable and has, for example, physical meaning. Um, And this is still a question that that is not entirely solved. Right. So this is something that people are, are actively researching and we don't have the ultimate answer. So how we did it for the visual localization project is essentially um, we propose to mimic the pipeline of a feature matching that is also present in, in classical visual localization methods where um, you have two images. You want to find the relative pose between them. And essentially what you do is you compute a series of features then you try to match these features and find a pose that explains these matches in a coherent way so that the geometry is okay for most of the matches. And this pipeline is actually very robust. And one of the problems that it has is that this feature extraction step was uh, completely handcrafted before. So people were using sift features or surf features. And this worked really well for many scenes, but they don't work, for example, indoor. Oh, what what are SIFT and SURF features? Oh, these are these are um, so SIFT are scale invariant uh, features. Um, they are essentially feature descriptors, like a bit like uh, corner uh, detectors, um, and they just um, they tell you where um, an interesting or let's say a, a defining feature of your scene is, and what is its descriptor. So you attach a vector to this particular feature. So when you look at the same scene, maybe from a slightly different angle, you get for the same point a very similar descriptor. And then you can say, oh, these two points are actually the same 3D point. They are just seen by uh, two different, um, from two different positions. Um, but the point is that this descriptor should be very similar for the same point in 3D. So that the these SIF features are playing a role similar to like an edge detector and classical uh, object detection. Yeah, for example, yeah. You you mentioned a few different ways to incorporate this uh, geometry into a pipeline. 
how does the way that you've chosen to do it map up to some of the general ways that you mentioned incorporating into the loss function, incorporating it into the shape of activations? Um, so it, it kind of um, approaches two sides. So one is definitely the loss function. The loss function is acting directly on the essential matrix prediction, which is the, the matrix that gives you the relative pose between the cameras. And the other thing is the, the actual uh, architecture. So we're making the architecture modular in, um, in the sense that um, since we're mimicking or trying to mimic this, this classic feature matching uh, pipeline, uh, we try also to uh, place the architecture, to design the architecture so that each of the parts mimics um, this, um, this visual localization pipeline. So we know that in the first CNN, you're going to extract some features that are going to be representative of your scene. Then you're going to have a matching step, and then you're going to have an essential matrix or relative pose regression. And, and this kind of dividing your neural network into different interpretable parts is, is also one way um, to first of all understand what's happening with your neural network and second of all include some information, some hard-coded information in the middle if you need to. Uh, you mentioned the essential matrix. What is uh, what is that and what's the role that it plays in, in this pipeline? So the essential matrix um, gives you essentially the relative pose between two cameras. So it tells you how can you go from a point in one camera to the exact same point, but a scene from the other camera. So it basically transforms your coordinates from one camera to the other. And this is this is all that we want to find. So once you have relative poses, then you can localize your camera, you can create all these maps, these 3D maps from images that I was talking about. And this is this is essentially what we want as a result from our algorithm. Okay. And so how how do you characterize the results of this approach relative to um, the the alternatives, you know, both traditional as well as uh, entirely data-driven approaches? Well, compared to other uh, data-driven approaches, um, one big difference is that most of the approaches are still tackling the absolute pose estimation problem, which means that you have a very well-defined scene with an origin, uh, which is the world coordinate of that origin, of that scene, sorry. And then you um, you localize yourself um, within that world coordinate, which means that suddenly now if you have another scene, this other scene will have a completely different world coordinate. And so um, what you're going to do is you're going to have to train one neural network per each of the scenes where you want to localize yourself. And this is not something that we want to do, of course. We want to build a system that is able, with a single network, to localize yourself anywhere. And this is one of the key differences of our proposed method, which actually tackles relative pose. So you can localize yourself everywhere with a single network. This is one huge difference. And um, compared to classic visual localization, um, we also showed in an, in an ICCV paper last year, 2017, we showed for the first time a comparison of classic methods versus uh, deep learning methods. And we showed essentially that, that classic methods are much, much more accurate by, by even an order of magnitude sometimes in some scenes, which means that, well, deep learning is still not there yet, but an advantage that deep learning has is that it can handle, for example, large indoor scenes 
which have uh, few texture. So, for example, um, large um, textureless surfaces like white walls or repetitive structures. For example, in a building, you have all the stairs that look the same, all the doors that look the same. And sometimes, even as a person, if you go, for example, to a hospital, it's hard to, to know where you are in the hospital. It's very easy to get lost. And this is the same for um, for classic methods, where they focus on, on these basic features and then they compare to staircases and they don't know which is which. And uh, deep learning methods are very, very good at capturing other subtle features that help them to localize better in these repetitive uh, indoor environments. So this is one real strength and where we see really the, the, the application for, for deep learning methods and this is why also we proposed a new data set called TUM-LSI, Large Scale Indoor Localization Data Set. And uh, this we also published last year in, in our ICCB paper. And this is a really, really challenging task to localize yourself in those indoor environments. Uh, what's your intuition for why deep learning is so much better uh, at that particular type of environment? relative to uh, classical approaches and yet worse overall in, in the traditional types of environments? Well, the, the key is that um, classic methods are based on these features that I was talking about before, so sift or surf. And these features are um, can only be um, present when you have, um, let's say, characteristic parts in your image. So if you have... Um, uh, a white wall with no corners, no edges, then uh, there's not going to be any feature on that white wall. While if you go, for example, to Marienplatz and you have this, this beautiful building, which is the city hall, it's full of tiny details, tiny corners. And so you're going to have really many, many features firing on that building. So when you have a, a localization pipeline that is based on those features, um, it's really easy to localize yourself in Marienplatz, for example, because you have many, many features to base your localization on. But if you just see a white wall and you have no features, then you, you have nothing to, to compute your, your camera position because th there's no features, so there's no matching happening. And, and this matching between 2D features and the features in your 3D model is the key uh, to the visual localization pipeline. And so... Um, deep learning looks more at the overall picture, so looks at the white wall, but also maybe at the column on the right, maybe there's some chair also in this scene, and tries to look at the whole picture and give you a descriptor for the whole scene. So even if you don't have many corners or if you have like a white wall, you can also use the fact that there's a white wall without features in there to localize yourself. And this is something that classic methods um, don't do, or at least classic methods based on, on sift and surf type of features. Now, you've got in this architecture, you've got kind of this, uh, I guess what I'm envisioning as a, a feature identification or extraction stage or module or, or something along those lines. And, and then, you know, once you've done that, are you reusing existing uh, neural network architectures to perform uh, some of the rest of the, uh, the the pipeline or is it uh, all kind of new architectures? No, so actually the, the feature extraction part 
is uh, is based on on well-known architectures. So we tried um, Google Net, we tried ResNet. Currently, ResNet is what works best. And so this essentially, it's pre-trained on ImageNet, so it gives us a really, really good initialization for our weights. And how we use it is essentially we're training uh, to go from uh, the image to a descriptor, a vector of a certain number of elements. And for this, we do reuse um, these, um, these classic architectures. And then the rest is trained from scratch. Okay. And how do you determine what the dimensionality of this uh, feature vector is? Well, this is a bit of a trial and error, right? So um, right now we're using, uh, we tried using something like uh, 2000, I think it was 2048. Uh, we also try using 4000 or even smaller. And in the end, you kind of uh, do trial and error and see what works best for your problem. Uh, and then taking a step back to the the broader problem you've got um these kind of many images of these worlds or environments uh from from different angles and you've talked about the relative performance of these different types of approaches for kind of interior scenes versus exterior scenes are you uh, training models that are good at one of these environments or are you somehow integrating these and and starting to look at models that can handle different scales or different um, transition from one type of environment to the next? Um, that's actually an excellent question. Ideally, um, so theoretically, our network can handle any type of environment, indoor and outdoor. But in practice, um, it the best thing is to train a network for indoor and a network for outdoor. So this is, uh, in my opinion, still okay, because you only have two types of networks. And currently the bottleneck is actually um, the step before the one where you actually train your network, which is um, to find pairs um, between your image, so the image that you are taking at test time, and the training images that you have around you. So, of course, you can imagine that you are in this in this city and you cannot evaluate all the possible training images that you have from the city and that you use to reconstruct your model. And so you have to prune all these images. And so at test time, you arrive there, you take a picture and you want to find, let's say, the 30 pictures that are most similar to your picture. And so for this, we use yet another um, CNN architecture. Um, and it's it's basically solved the problem that is called image retrieval. So it retrieves images that are similar to your own image. So, for example, you want to localize yourself in Munich. It doesn't make any sense to compute relative poses between your images and the images from Paris or London. So this network is able to tell you, look, these are 30 images that are most likely located in the same place where you are, roughly speaking. And then you can compute the relative pose between these 30 images and your own query or test image. And the problem is that the CNN for image retrieval that works for outdoors doesn't work so well for indoors. So now we're trying to figure out whether we need to retrain this network completely different and just use two networks, one for indoor, one for outdoor, or if we can actually reuse some, um, some of this network that actually works so well outdoors. So this is kind of what we're um, researching right now. 
there's also a part of this that is related to scale and maybe you, you it's kind of the same answer and you you've addressed it but when i think of you know these outdoor images you mentioned at uh, a square you know the camera tends to be a lot further from the 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 buildings whereas if i'm navigating a hospital you know corridor uh the camera tends to be very very close. Does just this, the idea of having two models uh, address the scale issues or do you run into scale issues, you know, for example, depending on the, with both within, you know, either of these two uh, types of environments? Um, So actually we have to fix the scale of our essential matrices. So essentially what we do is, is we take the translation and we give it, we force it to have norm of one. And with this, what we're essentially saying is we're fixing the scale of our essential matrix. Then we train the network to predict only essential matrices with this particular scale. And then um, at a later stage, we will triangulate from all the training images and the relative poses, we will triangulate the real scale and the real pose of the, uh, of the image at test time. And so with this, actually, we can handle um, varying scales. So it, it's not to say that the network um, is very robust to all the range of scales. So this is also something that we need to, to dig into. Uh, but theoretically, you can actually handle any type of, of scales. And how about generalization? How do you explore the generalizability of this approach? That's, that's an excellent question, because um, what we have recently observed is that um, the, so the more, one of the advantages of our method is that um, since we're predicting relative poses and therefore we can use any image from any scene, now we're not bounded to one scene, uh, we can use much, much more training data. And we have observed that the more training data you use, of course, the better your localization is. So first it gets worse, but then it gets better. Um, but still, you do need to see some examples from your test scene um, to be able to localize yourself properly there. So this is actually um, something that we're trying to figure out. Why is that? Because um, technically, the generalization power of the network is not perfect yet, because ideally you would want to train on a set of scenes and then have a completely new scene that the network has never seen before and be able to localize yourself there also. Mm-hmm. Well, this is not entirely true yet. So it does do a fairly good job, but it does a much, much better job when you see at least some images from that test scene. And so um, the generalization is still something that we're looking into. Oh, really interesting. Really interesting. So you're also doing some work on object segmentation. Is that related to this project or is it a totally separate effort? Well, it's it's all part of, of the interest of, of my group, of the Dynamic Vision and Learning um, group, which is to actually um, be able to analyze the dynamic scenes around you. And this, of course, englobes a bunch of problems. So ranging from from the multiple object tracking problem, where I started my PhD, to the visual localization, which, of course, we're working also on on video uh, localization. Um, And um, to be able to fully analyze what's happening around you and also analyze it in time. So not only image-based, but video-based. You also need to perform, for example, video object segmentation. And this is uh, one project that we are also doing in collaboration with with people from ETH Zurich. 
And, and in this particular project, uh, what we wanted to do was we wanted to tackle the problem of supervised video object segmentation. And by supervised, what I mean that is that um, you're given uh, in the first frame of your video a perfect mask uh, that um, expresses which object you want to follow, which object you want to segment in your video. And so your goal now is to segment this object to find out um, which pixels in the following frames belong to this particular object. And so you can imagine that this is kind of easy if the object doesn't move much, if the object doesn't change the appearance much. But as soon as the object, for example, turns around and now you're seeing a completely different side of the object or the illumination changes or the, the position of the camera changes, um, these are all big challenges for this problem. And so uh, what we proposed in a work that we presented at CVPR uh, 2017 already is um, to actually um, do this fully data-driven. So there is this wonderful data set created by, by Disney Research and ETH people um, that is called um, the Davis data set. And this contains really, really accurate segmentation masks. And by accurate, I mean sometimes crazy accurate, where you see, I don't know, the hair of horses segmented out one by one. So oh, this wow. Is, yeah, it's, it's really crazy. Um, and so with this, now you have like this, this wonderful source um, to train your networks. And so what we propose to do is, is to actually, um, so, so the key um, idea in that paper was actually the training scheme. So it's not a classical training where you just input your data and you get your output. Um, but first you take this network, which is a classic convolutional neural network. Um, you kind of pre-train it for the task uh, of video object segmentation. So you give it a bunch of, of masks of objects and you train your, your network. But what is happening now is that your network is trained to do some sort of foreground background separation but it doesn't know which object you actually want to follow, right? You, you just have trained it with a bunch of objects. You can segment a bus, a car, a, a chair. So there's all these types of objects in, in your data set. And so now you, you still have to tell your network which object you actually want to segment. And so um, how we do it is in a second training stage, we use this first mask of the object that we do have available and we kind of overfit the network to that mask. So we say, really learn the appearance of that particular object. So overfit your network to that particular object. And then the only thing that you need to do is you run your network for the rest of the frames. And it will be able to, um, to segment your object for the rest of the video. And, and this was actually a really, really novel um, way of doing video object segmentation. And there has been a bunch of works that have followed later this paradigm. And this was, um, this was what we presented um, at CPR 17 and it's called, um, it's called OSVOS for one-shot video object segmentation. And the idea is that, um, so why we call it one-shot is because you only see the object once in this first frame and then you're able to, um, to segment it and tracking over the whole video. I'm trying to wrap my head around how you would go about the overfitting part of the training and, and maybe the, the question that I'm coming to is, is the, is this process something that is automatable or something that you can build into an automated process or is it a very manual 
process that needs to to be you know supervised by a researcher or a practitioner um, in order to work? No, essentially, this is completely automatic. So the only thing that you need is the mask of your object for one of the frames. And then uh, you pass this mask as a training as an example to your network. You do all sorts of data augmentation, for example, and you train your network for um, really quite some iterations. And during this process, essentially what your network learns is what is the appearance of this object and what is the appearance of the background. And this is completely automatic. So as long as you have the mask of your object, you're good to go. Um, of course, the, the bad thing or the small drawback is that if your background or your object change the appearance too much, for example, a new object appears on the scene or a second object that looks exactly like your first object appears on the scene, then this is going to be a problem. So we had this, this sequence, the, the, the famous two camel sequence, where um, you're segmenting this camel that is moving along, and then a second camel appears on the scene. And of course, the second camel looks exactly the same as the first camel. And so our network suddenly says, well, this is also my object. I also want to follow this. And so it segments the two camels. But now the problem is that you only want to segment one camel. So what you can do is, is provide another training image to your network where you have the two camels, and one is segmented as your true camel that you want to follow, and the other is segmented as background. So you don't really care about the other camel. So now you're giving your network the further information that there's a second camel in the scene, but you don't really want to segment it. And with this, you can actually correct your network and fine-tune it a little bit more towards only the first camel. And so now you will be able to segment only one camel in this scene. Does this apply to specific types of objects? How broadly does it apply? You know, for example, what is the, the types of objects that are in this Davis data set? And does that, um, you know, to, to what extent does that constrain the, the model or is the model focused on those types of images? So actually you can tackle any type of object. This is completely independent from the object types. Um, Davis has quite a wide range of objects, I would say. But the interesting thing is that we're not basing ourselves on, on object proposals or on, on object classifiers, uh, but it's really this foreground background separation. So if you have a picture with whatever strange object and this object is segmented out, the network is going to be able to learn the appearance of this object. And it doesn't matter if it's an elephant or if it's a chair, you're going to be able to follow it. Now, of course, if you are constrained by certain object types, you can do a better work. And indeed, we uh, we also worked on that in, in the upcoming journal extension for this paper, which we also published last year. And this was the idea that um, you can use all these object proposals, for example, coming from MASCAR CNN, um, to kind of help you and guide you through the segmentation. So if in the first mask you find that you have a lot of overlap between your segmentation and, for example, uh, the proposal of a motorbike, then you're kind of sure that the object that you're trying to follow is a motorbike. And then you can constrain your segmentation also with a series of proposals that Mascar CNN gives you. Uh, but this is something that is, uh, it's kind of an extra to improve segmentation, but you don't need to do it. So if you don't know what object you want to follow, you can still use the method as it is, and it will still be able to follow it. 
There was another project I came across that you were working on uh, called Social Maps. What's that one about? Yes, yeah, so um, Social Maps is actually uh, a bit of uh, my vision of what uh, computer vision and AI can do for society. So in this project, um, I actually proposed this uh, this whole research project for uh, for an award. So I, it was this research uh, grant proposal. And um, I was lucky enough that it was accepted for uh, for the Sofia Kovalevskaya Award by the Humboldt Foundation last year. Um, so very few um, really talented researchers um, get this award, and I was lucky to be in this in this pool of of researchers. And congratulations! Um, thank you, thank you very much. Well, the, the main advantage, of course, is that it comes with with quite some money, uh, one point sixty five million euros. And with that, um, of course, I can pay for PhD students, for equipment. Um, so, so this is really the, uh, the big advantage of, um, of such an award that I, I was able to start my research group right away. And so I have right now three wonderful PhD students that are working really hard. And so all these projects that I mentioned are actually um, with all of them. And um, essentially, the project uh, Social Maps is very much related to um, the idea that I've said before, that we want to understand these um, dynamic scenes around us, um, but it has a very specific application. So um, if you think about Google Maps, for example, um, you see that they are really an excellent source of static information. So they have uh, very precise maps of where roads are, where, where shops and restaurants are. Um, so wherever you want to go, uh, Google Maps is going to give you a really um, optimized route that you can follow and you will get to your place wherever you are. And so um, the idea though is that um, this is still um, a relatively uh, limited um, information because it's only static information. And what I would like to input into maps is the social information. And so what I mean by social information is essentially how pedestrians, how people use public spaces so I want to automatically analyze uh, the motion of pedestrians, um, what is happening in the streets um, in real time. And I want to input this information into maps. So, for example, let's assume that um, I have to go from my home, which is in the south of Munich, and I have to go to, to my workplace, which is actually in Garching, so quite far away. And I'm taking my car and I'm putting into Google Maps my destination. And then Google Maps just tells me a way to follow. But um, let's imagine that now I have some cameras in the middle of the city of Munich and I can detect automatically that there's some demonstrations starting. So there's a bunch of people uh, gathering, they're cutting the streets. So I'm not going to be able to pass through those streets. Now, if you take Google Maps as it is now, um, you will only be notified about this once you, there's already a traffic jam. So traffic reports are included into Google Maps, but you don't want to be the first one that is stuck into traffic. So I want to be able to detect how people use public spaces and whether there's a demonstration or whether kids are coming out of school. I want to be able to detect it fast by using this um, dynamic scene understanding and, and using computer vision and AI. And I want to input this information into maps so that now I don't get um, the normal optimized route, but somehow a social route. And by social route, what I mean is I want to decouple pedestrian traffic from vehicle traffic. So if cars are going always in certain roads um, and now these roads uh, are being used by pedestrians, I want to tell cars to use other um, routes or other roads. 
And this is kind of the, for example, one of the short-term applications. But of course, in the long term, um, having access to all this data and all this analyzed data, so trajectories of pedestrians, how pedestrians use public spaces, where do they tend to cross, how do which exits, for example, from uh, from a railway station, do they use most? If you provide this information to people that are actually planning the cities, so the urban planners, uh, then they can hopefully design better cities also for pedestrians. So this is kind of the the long-term goal of this project, Social Maps. Interesting. It makes me think of a uh, kind of a a map system like Waze, but uh, curated using or updated using video information as opposed to this telemetry from other you know, drivers using the app. Exactly, exactly. And the advantage is that you don't have to share your information. So you are just there and things are just detected. But of course, you're not identified, you're not followed. So it's just about following the trends of people, not not the actual persons. I think this is an important difference to make here. So it sounds like the projects that we've talked about are, you kind of think of as individual pieces within this overarching vision of of social maps. Are there specific projects that you are working on um, that get you to the map piece or does that come later? Um, So that that comes uh, a bit later. So I'm more interested in the dynamic understanding part. Um, So I have also uh, one PhD student that just started and is going to work more on on what we talked about before, some constraining networks with physical models, and in particular apply them to to multiple object tracking. So this is still a problem that is not solved. Um, So we, uh, in 2014, opened um, a benchmark for multiple object tracking called Mod Challenge. And you can see there that that multiple object tracking methods have been really pushing the state of the art up. And so they've become better and better, but there's still tons of problems there. And in crowded scenes where you can barely identify one pedestrian from the other, this is still a big problem. So we want to still work on on that particular problem. Uh, We want to work also on on semantic segmentation, so identifying uh, where in the city you are and, and which part of the city you're observing. Of course, for moving cameras, this is when the visual localization project comes in. And then um, I have also one one other PhD student working more on on general training or improving the training, making it easier to train um, big networks. So working more on on a bit theoretical machine learning. So it's it's all these little projects that are coming together, um, but but I'm still not working on the part of the actual map. So I think Google Maps already has a a, a good architecture and, and a good construction for these maps. So it would just be about providing this information. So performing this this motion analysis for pedestrians. And that's the, the main work of the um that I want to tackle. Well, it sounds like really exciting work, Laura. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about it. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. It was great. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Laura or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 168. Don't forget, July 31st is your last chance to nominate us for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. Head over to twimlai.com slash nominate and cast your vote right now. 
As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.